Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with the 2007 National League MVP and World Series champ, Jimmy Rollins. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by a three-time All-Star. He won four gold gloves. He was the NL MVP in 2007 and was a World Series champ in 2008. Ladies and gentlemen, Jimmy Rollins. Jimmy, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, Thanks for having me. I appreciate the uh, call and reaching out and making me feel relevant again. (laughs) <laughs> you, you got a long way to go to catch me. I haven't been there since 08, but uh, no, it's it's good catching up and off air a little bit earlier. Uh, we talked, you're back in Cali. You're back in the high tax zone. I, unfortunately, I am. Yes. <laughs> All right. Doing my prep work, Jimmy. Uh, you got some athletic people in your family. Who's the most athletic? Sister, brother, mom, dad. All athletes. Um, that is a great question. So I'm going to put it to you this way. I'm going to let, I'm going to give you a mama G answer. All right. So she is the best athlete in the family period. Um, and no one can argue that it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong. Mama G says she's the best. So we don't argue that mama G is the best. Then after that, it'll probably be, uh, myself, my sister, uh, and then maybe a tie between my dad and my brother. But as far as just, you know, just strength, strong, raw, athletic talent, that is, you know, it, it really has no home. I would say my da- uh, my brother, actually. He has no home for his talent, but he's probably the <laughs> – he could have been the most talented person in the family if he decided that's what he wanted to do. You know, Jimmy, in my family, you know how it went. It went. Who Whoever hadn't made it to the big leagues – that guy was going to be the best. So if grandpa was talking, you know, if grandpa was talking, dad's already, you know, dad's during his career. So dad's irrelevant. He's not the best. I'm the best because I'm the next one playing. When I got to the big leagues, Aaron was definitely the best. And then my youngest brother, Matthew, got drafted and then he was the best. So the rest of us stunk and it was Matthew. And you just work your way on up the ladder. And, and by the by the end, Gramps was the worst. So it's it's funny how it's funny how families go, and it's interesting. You know, when I when I was reading that about about your mom, we I recently had Ryan Klesko on the program, and he was telling me as a kid, his mom used to strap the gear on because uh, I don't know if you knew that, but Ryan was a pitcher coming out of high school. He ended up hurting his arm and, and turned into a hitter, the hitter that we knew and, and played against for years. But he, he told me he said. I did, I- I did not know that, but with that arm, I, I believe it. Yeah, Glasgow said she used to strap it on and he throw bullpens to her in the backyard. It was it was funny. So back to back to back. All right. Childhood. Alameda, California, East Bay. He grew up in the East Bay. I want to hear about Jimmy Rollins as a kid. What'd you like? I know uh, you played a little football, obviously yep. baseball. Uh probably an A's fan, but I'm gonna let of you course. fill me in fill me in on Jimmy Rollins as a kid. Of course, started out um, really my first memory, you know, and, you know, and sports and and just kind of loving baseball was going to see my mom play softball. She played second base 
And, um, you know, we'd go watch her play. My dad would pick me up on his shoulders and stand behind on plates. So I had the best view in the house. It was like the umpire not knowing what I was looking at. And I just watched him hit the ball, run around. I remember the smell. I remember there being a rock quarry. And we weren't too far from the Oakland Coliseum. So my first memory, you know, that I can really say I remember where I was and what it meant was watching my mom play softball. And then from there, uh, first Oakland A's game was going to see this team that was wearing gray uniforms and a bright, bright, bright royal blue. And it was the Oakland A's versus the Kansas City Royals. And it's funny, I'm an A's fan, but that color blue is my favorite color. I love blue since that point on. Like people ask what's my favorite color? Blue. Why? I never knew why until I got older and realized my first memory of color, you know, besides Oakland A's just being my team, was watching the A's play the Kansas City Royals. And I just loving that color. It was so vibrant. It, it, it stood out. Um, then I grew up uh, in Alameda uh, where, you know, and then back, you know, when I was growing up, you played all three sports. Whatever season it was, that's the sport you played. If it was summer, you played baseball. If it was winter, you, you were going between um, basketball and, and, and football. Um, so there wasn't anything that I didn't do, um, but my passion was baseball. And I could give that credit all to Gigi. And, you know, we had a lot of fun. She would tell us that, hey, if you go to the field and you come back and uniform isn't dirty, you haven't done your job. So no matter what I did, I had to dive, slide, I had to come back with a dirty uniform. And it was even better when it had a little hole in it because the knee pad would be showing and mom would have to sew it up. So you had to show that you did something. And, you know, I, I learned, honestly, how to talk trash from Mama G. Big Jim was a hard worker, kept his nose down. He went to work. Um, he, he went to work in the Batman hours. It was you never saw him do anything, but he came from the gym big and strong. And he didn't want people knowing what he was doing. And I was that way in a sense. But I got the brashness from my mom that, like, I'm going to talk trash. I'm from the Bay. This is what we do. It's up to you to keep me from talking trash. If I'm talking trash, you need to shut me up because I'm going to do my job. I know how hard I work. I know how talented I am. So that was me in a nutshell. And then you take that outside of sports. You know, I see I get on your nerves a little bit. But if I was on your team, I was the guy you wanted. I love it. And when you talk about it, you know, that's my childhood, too. And and a lot of the guys I have on the show, you know, um, th that was our upbringing. We played baseball. We played football. We played. It gave us a, you know, I don't know about you, but for me, it gave me a little bit of a break. You know, you wouldn't get burnouts like, all right, I, baseball was always my favorite. But all right, now we're going to play some hoops. I haven't done that for a while. And I can kind of get away from the from the ball yard for a while. I'm going to be back soon enough. But then, you know, it became football season. And and it was I, I thought it was great. I thought each sport, um, you know, has lessons for the other sport. I think by learning certain things uh, football wise, it, it makes you a better baseball player and, and vice versa. And basketball can translate, you know, just just lessons from one sport can help you in the other sports. You're a lot. Uh, more recently removed from the big leagues than I am. I, your last year, I believe, was 2016. Mine mm -hmm. was 08. So you kind of were getting out and the young players coming in at the time when, when you were that veteran guy getting ready to retire, a lot of those kids kind of got brought up in this modern era of travel ball. And, and as a 12-year-old, as a you're playing 130 games a year and 
and and you had to concentrate on one sport. Uh, history will tell, and I always I always say that mm-hmm. his, history will say whether this is the right way to go about it, or or will the other generations hold up with being more well rounded? But uh, interesting, I- interesting the takes you get, and and depending on the generation you grew up in, um, it, def- it definitely is. And I agree. I have a cousin who uh, who was drafted in 2018 with the Marlins, uh, Osiris Johnson. And it was that was the one thing I was concerned with is, you know, I, I would bring him out to the field. Um, you know, I'm not sure if they said aloud, but kids on the field, they were able to shag. This is my little cousin. He's four years old, five years old, running around in the outfield, just, you know, feeling his love for baseball. But I always would tell his dad, uh, who was, uh, who was you know, played in the minor leagues, who was my cousin, who actually put the wood bat in my hand first. It was like, just make sure he plays other sports, though, because the lessons, as you said, the lessons you do learn. There are things you can take from from each sport and apply it. And the best part is you're not applying. You don't learn it playing your sport. You learn it doing something else. And if you know baseball for me is my favorite sport, so I would always think in a baseball term. Although I'm playing football, although I'm playing basketball, if this was happening on the baseball field, how would I apply it? And I felt it made me a more uh, a, a well-rounded athlete, but more so a well-rounded thinker, knowing that there's more than one way to do it. That Although I may see it this way by seeing something over here, doing something, you know, that is out of my control, but following, you know, the chain of command, it may give me another way to do it when I get to the baseball field. So I agree. The burnout is real. Um, You know, these kids are definitely made to specialize. I think a lot of it is a money grab, honestly, Um, telling kids they have to play for them in the summer, the fall and the winter. And it's like that's that's just not cool. You should be able to play any sport you want when the season is in. Um, but um, for me, it was always, you know, stand in shape. I, I was basically stand in shape for baseball in my mind, but it definitely prevented the burnout, just mental burnout of having to go out there and, and hit a baseball and catch a baseball. Hey, you know what? I want to throw a ball. I want to try to throw a touchdown pass. I want to try to run a touchdown pass in. I want to hit a three-pointer. All those things that when baseball came back around, I was hungry again, like I want to play baseball as opposed to, do I have to do this today? I did it for the last five months. Where's my break? While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now, and they are the official sponsor of the Boone Podcast. Dan? Thanks, Boone. College basketball fans, join the action on the court during the biggest tournament of the year with DraftKings Sportsbook. Turn your team's victory into your own big win. New customers can bet $5 on any team to win and get $200 in free bets if they do. It's that simple. If they win, you win. Everyone wins. If Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, you can still join the College Hoops action with DraftKings Pools. Everyone can play free pools all March long for a shot at a share of over $250,000 in prizes. Simply join a pool and answer questions like, who will make it to the next round, and who will hit the most three-pointers, then track your results. Simply download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now, use promo code BOONE, B-O-O-N-E, bet $5 on any college hoops team to win, and get $200 in free bets if they do. If they win... 
you win with promo code Boone, B-O-O-N-E, this week at DraftKings Sportsbook. 21 plus restrictions apply. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, crisis counseling and referral services can be accessed by calling 1-800-GAMBLER, 1-800-426-2537, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Wyoming, 1-800-NEXT-STEP, Arizona, 1-800-522-4700, Colorado, New Hampshire, 888 789-7777. Visit http colon forward slash forward slash ccpg.org slash chat Connecticut 1-800-BETS-OFF Iowa 1-877-770-STOP-7867 Louisiana 877-8-H-O-P-E-N-Y text H-O-P-E-N-Y 467-369 New York visit OBGR.org Oregon call text in Tennessee redline 1-800-889-9789 Tennessee or 1-888-532-3500, Virginia, 21+, plus, 18+, plus, New Hampshire, Wyoming, physically present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Louisiana, Michigan, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Wyoming only. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See HTTP colon forward slash forward slash DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. And now back to my interview with Jimmy Rollins. It's really interesting. And I have had a chance to, to coach all three of my boys in the travel ball, you know, that, that kind of psycho environment where I, <laughs> I learned after a while, I recruited parents, not kids. You know, it's like, I, I don't want to get the best kid because that guy's parent is a wacko and he, and he expects little Johnny, you know, he's the greatest and he's going to the big leagues. Just, just let him tell you. And I got to a point where we, we had a really good group of parents. We had to play our best in a tournament to be standing at the end. Uh, but it was fun and the kids had fun and they enjoyed it. And I always, you know, I took a moment and, you know, you have the kids coming up to you. We always do. You know, what advice do you give them? And I always used to tell them, I said, you know, you're a really good player. And in a few years, we're going to find out if you can play at that college level or that pro level. I said, but I want you to look back when you're 25 years old because the chances of you being a big leaguer and playing 20 years, I didn't actually say that. I didn't actually say this to him, but right. me and you know that the, the odds aren't with you, no matter how good you are at 12. And I, I want them to look back when they're 25 years old and they're out in the real world and, and they're earning a living to say, you know, when I played for Brett when I was 12, man, we had a lot of fun. And those mm-hmm. trips to Arizona, because that's what it's all about. I, I see these kids, some of these kids get a little burnout and, and overbearing situations like you will play and you're going to play 120 games and you're going to have private lessons and this and that. Maybe every kid when they're 12, that's not what they want to do. They sometimes they just want to have an ice cream cone and go to the movies with their buddies. And I I just think we get a little too much in that, not to, not to harp too much on this modern era, but those Mm -hmm. are just some of my thoughts that come in. It's about enjoying your childhood. You know, you'll find out soon enough who who the elite players are. About 16, 17, you'll start to see who has a chance to go to the next level. But until then, man, let kids be kids. Uh, your sister also hoops at, at the University of San Francisco. Uh, yeah. And and get me closer. You go to high school. I think you go to Encino High. Encino, yep. Encino, okay. Yep. And a couple guys I was looking at, Dontrell went there, which is a current player, Dontrell Willis, that played in our generation. And yep. uh, then you go blast from the past. Willie Stargell was an alumni uh, of your high school. Yes. But that's interesting. You yes. get into high school, 
take me through that. I know you had committed to Arizona State. Um, you know, that, that ends up going by the wayside when you're drafting the second round by, by the Phillies. <laughs> when, you got, when you got drafted in the second round, did you automatically say, I'm not going to A-State? Or, or what was your – take me through right before draft day what, what Jimmy Rollins was thinking. Okay. Um, well, it's funny. So the day before draft day, my mom and uh, I guess my dad, you know, I'm sure my dad just went ahead and okayed it. But my mom, uh, you know, was planning a draft party. Every indication was I would go, you know, late first round, uh, but more likely a high second round. Um, Seattle was a team that was very heavy on me. I played with their scout league team. I think uh, Tom, no, uh, somebody Harper was a scout, um, was a scout team coach. So, you know, a week, two weeks before the draft, we fly out to Seattle. I go in the clubhouse. I meet Alex, I meet Junior, I meet Buner, and, you know, it's real. It's like, man, uh, you know, Seattle was heavy on me. They're flying me out. I play in the scout league team. They bring me, you know, to meet the players. The only hesitation I had about being drafted with Seattle was, one, they were a very good team at the time, so that meant I'd have to go late second round, and they said, if you fall this late, we're going to take you. You're going to be our pick. Two, they had a guy named Alex Rodriguez in his first year in the big leagues. So that wouldn't have, you know, played out very well for me. So I love the organization. Obviously, any chance to play anywhere that Griffey was would have been fun. But I want to play shortstop, man. This kid is not moving off a shortstop, not the way he's he's starting off. And then there was the Atlanta Braves, another great team in the midst of their um, 14, I think, straight NL East division titles. But they had a guy named Jeff Blauser. And I'm like, well, he's not going anywhere. And I, I don't plan to be behind anybody for too long I hope I don't want to be stuck you know in, in that Congo line of just getting bumped down because this guy has a long-term deal so those were the options those were really the only two teams that I'm, I was aware of that paid me any attention so any either way and they're saying the same thing if you go late in the second round if you fall this late we'll take you so that was my future then draft day comes uh, we know you know the first round is, is going on and, you know, you hear all the um, sayings, you know, the first rounder usually lasts about this long. Didn't get a phone call. So my mom, she steps out. She's still planning the party. And she steps out to the store. She's going to get something. I can see that she's nervous. And I'm just kicking back chilling. I was like, well, shoot. Well, maybe I don't get drafted. Maybe I am going to Arizona State. You know, it's not a big deal. I'm a great student. It's a great school. And I get a phone call from a scout named Bob Poole. And he was like, hey, this is Bob Poole with the Philadelphia Phillies. And I'm confused. I'm just like, okay, what is this call about? You know, it, it was it didn't never crossed my mind that this was a guy informing me that I'm being drafted by the Phillies in the second round. And I didn't remember. I I, I remember the Phillies coming out to one game in particular. Um, Mike Arbuckle. I saw him. I, I didn't officially get to meet him, but they told me who he was. And I remembered the name and I remembered the face. And so he was like, hey, this is Bob Poole with the Philadelphia Phillies, and I want to let you know that we just drafted you uh, with, the, I think, the 42nd pick of the second round. And I was just like, the Phillies? you got to be kidding. The Phillies? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It was no longer about being drafted. It was my mind was set. I'm going, and if I get, if it's a second round call, it's the Braves or the Manners. So the Phillies, I, I was just so confused. So we got off the phone. 
Um, and I just sat there and I'm just like, the Phillies, the Phillies? No. And the All-Star game was there in 1996. I remember uh, an AstroTurf field, if you want to call it AstroTurf, um, and a horrible looking stadium, just, you know, mismatched colored seats everywhere. And I'm just like, oh my goodness. The only thing I can tell you about Philadelphia are cheesesteaks and Mike Schmidt. That was it. It was, <laughs> and, you know, it was like, wow, okay, well, I guess I'll be, um, going to the Phillies. So my mom comes back and she's, you know, and I'm just sitting there on the couch the same way um, I was when she left. <coughs> Excuse me. And she was like, um, well, babe, you know, um, you know, don't, don't worry about it too much. I'm sure you'll get the phone call and, you know, we'll still, we'll still have the party. And this is probably about 10 minutes of her being home. And I looked at her, I was like, no, I already got the phone call. And you could just see just just all the stress leave her face and the joy and excitement, but also the like, why didn't you say anything? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, you know, I'm running around going crazy. You have a phone call that you haven't even told me about. And I was like, yeah, but it's the Phillies, mom. If it was Seattle or Atlanta. I would have told you, but the Phillies? <laughs> and that's what it was. And she's like, you know what, baby? Think of it this way. There is nobody in front of you. And from that point on, I'm like, you're right. They may not be winning now. But when I get there, I'm guaranteeing you today, here, mom, that we'll win a championship. And I was able to do that. It was his best best phone call you ever got. Looking back, you know, you end up having a, a awesome career in Philadelphia. That's the place I grew up, and I know how. You know, I, I could only imagine when you guys won won the series in '08, uh, because you know it's weird. I see pictures of myself when I was a little kid when when uh, Dad's team in 1980 won it, and yeah. I was on I was on that float. You know, and I was 10 years old. I didn't know. I didn't have a worry in the world. I'm like, well, they're bringing me to this float. They won the World Series. Must be what every kid gets to do. And looking back on it, it was it was so amazing. I'd never seen that many people in my life. And I remember because I, had, you know, I had for me and you going on Nike trips and, and a buddy of mine, Jamie Moyer, who's a who's a real good family friend through the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was on that team when you won the World Series. And I remember thinking, wow. That parade's going to be unbelievable. And we'll get to that a little bit later. Before we leave your childhood, I got I got to ask you. Tell me about the trumpet. Tell me about MC Hammer. <laughs> you're well-rounded. I know your, your parents, you know, they said, Jimmy, that, that, uh, that baseball is great, but we want you to be well-rounded to put the trumpet in your hand. I had no idea you, you could play the trumpet. So, 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 so. Um, you know, growing up, uh, my uncle – well, shoot, you asked my dad, he was a little uh, doo-wop singer, if you ask him. He wrestled, he, you know, he sang with the boys on the corner. And so music has always been in my family. Uh, when we were younger, my dad would literally make my brother and I sing songs to my mom at night. Like, we were like a, a, a doo-wop group, the Rollins doo-wop. And every night, we'd, we'd, he'd make us sing her a song. Um, but then, you know, a guy by the name of Bill Clinton becomes president, and he's playing the saxophone. Well, at that point, I'm like, I want to play the saxophone. He's making that thing look cool. So I decide in about the sixth grade, 
know what? I'm going to join uh, the jazz band. I don't want to be in a regular band. I want to play real fun music. And I get there, you know, two weeks after school starts because that's when I decided I didn't want whatever my elective was, I wanted to change. But when I get there, there's no more saxophones left. Only thing there, you know, I was like, okay, well, I'll play, you know, percussion. Not the drums are already all, all taken up or spoken for. Um, but there are horns. There's a horn section. All right. How about the trombone? No, nah, that's, that's not cool. It was goofy, long, and nah, who wants to play a trombone? Um, I'll play a trumpet. All right, cool. The trumpets, you know, high horns. It's a little thing, three little fingers. I can move around. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about the style. And that's really how it happened. And, and I would play the trumpet. Lo and behold, my uncle actually played the trumpet. So I would go over there and we would play together. And it got to a point where I was very good. So from sixth grade to the 10th grade, I was in the jazz band and I was the uh, lead trumpet. By the eighth grade, I was lead trumpet. Ninth grade, tenth grade, same way. But it got to the point where we're doing band reviews and all this stuff, and it's starting to collide with my baseball schedule now. And me wanting to be a baseball player, and just having common sense, I'm like, you know what? I'm either getting a scholarship or I'm getting drafted. And if I stay in band, somebody who may need a music scholarship I'm standing in her way. So I went to the teacher and I told him the conflict of schedule and uh, a real good friend of mine. I remember Rachel Knight. Um, she was a number two. And <coughs> excuse me. Um, I told her, look, I'm going to play baseball. I know, you know, how, how important this is to you. I'm going to step aside and you can be the number one trumpet. And from that point on, my trumpet playing days were over. I enjoyed every second of it, but it was time to move on. Can you can you still play today, or do you ever pick it up? Negative, Ghost Rider. Negative. Wow. All right, back to the draft. <laughs> get, get drafted, sign. Uh, you spent parts of five years in the minor league, starting the Appalachian League. I always think about this, Jimmy. I, I signed out of college, so it's a moot point. I, I don't know how. You asked Brett Boone when he was 18 years old, 17 years old, coming out of high school. I am the greatest player on the history of the earth, and just ask me. Uh, but I didn't get drafted high enough, so it wasn't even an option for me. I went to college. You know, I, I think uh, I think it was good for me, you know, I have no idea what would have happened if I would have just gone as an 18-year-old. How was it for you coming straight out of high school? You're going from varsity baseball to now you're playing with the, with the big boys. You know, there's some guys yeah. out there that, that have been playing two or three years. You're playing with 23-year-old men that have already been all Americans in college, and now you're on the same field with them. How was that adjustment period uh, for you? And and did you ever have times where you think you get homesick or something like that? I, th the reason I say college for me, I think, was beneficial is, you know, I just went 45 minutes from, from Orange County where, where I went to high school. So, you know, mom was far enough away from me, but but she was close okay. enough where she'd come pick up my laundry and drop off okay. some meals, you know. Right, so right. I, I got a little bit of living on my own without getting that real homesick. I, I was a I was a, you know, a, a car drive, 45 minute drive away anytime if I got homesick. But uh, how was that for you? Different no, for I everybody. Yeah, I, I think I was ready. Um, I got broken in, um, shoot, at about, I'm sorry, eight years old. And I remember, you know, the first trip was going to Reno, Nevada for the All-Star team. 
uh, playing with the nine, nine and ten year olds when I was eight years old and going away, you know, to another state, it felt like I left the country. And I got there my first night. I cried. I cried. I cried. I called home. My dad was like, you know, he's he's kind of laughing, which is which is kind of messed up. He's laughing like, boy, you'll be all right. Don't worry about it. You know, it's your first time really being away, other, you know, from family and everything else. But you're there to play baseball. Next night, same thing happens. He's like, okay, well, if you want, we can come out there. They, ne- they were never planning on coming out there. Just telling your kids anything to keep them calm. By day three, I called. I was like, hey, I'm having the best time of my life. I realized that being away from home didn't mean I was alone. I was out there playing baseball, which is what I love to do. And when I learned to focus on that, it didn't matter where I was. I knew I was just a phone call away uh, from my mom or dad just to say hello if I missed them. So for me, um, you know, the homesick part, I, I, I was broken early. But I think that helped prepare me for travel, for being away, for the future. I was always younger playing with the older kids. Um, I was talented enough that when I was 13, they had me play with the 14, 15-year-olds, depending on the level of competition. If it was a big game, that I play, I played my game as as a thirteen year old, and then play again um, with the fourteen, fifteen year old because I was just an added, I was an added help. They felt so that helped me that when I got drafted and I showed up in Martinsville, Virginia, although I knew that these, you know, some a lot of the kids actually were older than I was. I was seventeen years old, so I'm playing with you know twenty one, twenty two year old college players. It didn't really phase me. I wasn't really in competition with them. My job was to come play shortstop. When I'm at the plate, I get hits. When I'm on the bases, I steal bases. That's it. If I do that, it doesn't really matter the age gap. And I mean, you know, the speed of the game, yes, have to get um, acclimated to that, planning that heat, doing it every single day. Every single day. Those are things I have to get acclimated to. But um, I think mentally, because I've been doing it for so long, being the younger guy playing up, that when I got there, it was no different. Started off in the Appalachian League. I think you played in the Sally League, Florida State. Uh, you get to Clearwater. Uh, we had a guy in the, the program recently, uh, Pat Burrell. I think you you Ooh, met right Pat. You, <laughs> Pat the Bat, baby. Pat the Bat. And uh, I think you played with him uh, as you were getting close. You ended up going to the International League. And in uh, 2000, you make your debut. You only get 50, I think 53 ABs, but you – but you hit 321 mm-hmm. and and that's the last time you were in the minor leagues uh you know i don't i don't know if down yeah. the road you had a rehab assignment or anything but for real when when we're for real in the, in, in the, the minor, minor in the minor leagues yeah um how was that for you? You got a feisty guy. Also, we've had him on Larry Boa as your skipper. I got a funny story for you in 03 when we rolled to the vet uh, when I was on when I was playing with the Mariners because growing up with Larry, oh, he was it, it, it was it was hilarious. And now all of a sudden I'm always interacting with with Larry as a little kid adult. <laughs> now all of a sudden I'm player and he's the manager of the Phillies. But uh, how was that for you? Um Finally, you get your shot, and, and you're the guy. And, and starting in 2001, and this is – I'll get into this, too. This is impressive to me. I mean, I talk a lot about uh, the ability to post, which means, you know, they always talk about his arm strength, his power, bat speed, speed. But they never talk about 
the durability and showing up. I, I look at your ABs. I think I got six a six hundred ABs. Now I wasn't a leadoff hitter. I think I got six hundred ABs once. I was in the fives. You go. You get six fifty. See, you got seven hundred and sixteen ABs in two thousand seven. That's unbelievable. But what I'm saying is. You were there. You you were one of those guys your teammate could rely on. That Jimmy's going to be at the yard and he's going to be in the lineup every day, which is which is awesome for a teammate. You know, for the guys out, we we know what that's like. You know, you mm-hmm. depend on certain guys to show up and be there every day. You were definitely that guy. But take me through your first real campaign, which was two thousand one. Uh, you hit fourteen jacks your first year, but a big part of your game was was stealing bases and you stole 46 bases. I think you led the league your, your rookie year. Uh, if that was your rookie year, 2001, yep, that was, was one. Yeah. Was, you, yep. you, you were an all-star. Uh, you came to Seattle, my home, yes, my hometown that year for yes, that was really cool. Uh, you know, just the team I was on and, and that, magical year that we had it just happened to fall that seattle was hosting the all-star game that year really cool but uh, take me through that that season for you that 2001 rookie season i definitely will nuts and speaking of that um 2003 season when you guys uh came out to philadelphia and absolutely absolutely destroyed us (laughs) i remember it i I loved i loved the bet Hey, Bo has some pretty choice words for us oh. after that series. I'm like, bro, are, are you saying where they're hitting these balls, though? <laughs> like, like you went dead center, third deck, and then right center. I'm like, hold on. How is this even happening? Like, I, I this doesn't happen. And each row doing – I mean, y'all, you guys have bangers. And I'm sitting there like, what do you want us to do, Larry? Like, really? Like, this – do you see the other side of that team? And you – anyhow, the 2001 campaign um, – Larry Bo is my skipper, and you hear all these horror stories about Larry, and not that they're not true. He's definitely a hard manager, and he wears his emotions on his sleeve, and, you know, what you see is what you get. Uh, but for me, I didn't have an issue with it. I just It was almost like, you know, your dad trying to make you tough, and he's going to test you, and he's going to make sure that there's no softness to you, understanding you know, what it's life, what it's like going through life as a man. So that's how I saw Larry. And I would not told him, you know, one day he pulled me aside and he wanted me to do something his way. And I'm like, I'm going to do it my way. It doesn't matter that you want it your way because this is my career. And he just kind of looked at me and he just kind of laughed. I was like, no, I'm like, I'm not scared of you. I'm like, I'm scared of my dad, but I'm not scared of you. Like, what can you actually do to me? Like that my dad hasn't. So, and from that point on, you know, we were good, but uh, he definitely kept the eye on me. He gave me free range um, and he stood up for me. And as a player, especially a young player uh, playing a position that he played, I'm sure I had some favoritism in that regard. But knowing that my job is to be an impact player, that my job is to bring excitement and to bring noise, he had to protect me because you had guys um, that didn't like that. You had an organization that hadn't really won anything. And here I am, this ball of energy, like, hey, guys, you know, let's go in the right direction. And on top of that, I'm the leadoff hitter. So I am in the fire first. I'm the first one through it. So, you know, and later my career became, you know, at, you know, he go, we go. As Jimmy goes, we go. But it started well before that. And that was the energy I brought around. Like, it doesn't matter you know, that we lost 100 games last year. Not to me. I wasn't here. 
but I'm here now, and this is what's happening today. Who do we have on the mound? I'm talking, just trying to bring that energy, and that was that youthful exuberance, something I had done, um, you know, in high school. And the minors, not so much because you're just trying to grind and get to the big leagues. But now I'm here. It's like, man, it's a celebration. I'm trying to do something. You know, I'm not just trying to uh, play baseball and go home in September. I'm I'm trying to win. And Bo, he definitely protected me a lot that year and allowed me to be myself, which, you know, bode, which uh, bode, boded well for my future and just being able to be who I was. Uh, as far as the All-Star, uh, Bobby Valentine blessed me with that. You know, I didn't feel that I was worthy of being an All-Star that year. I'm what, 60, 70 games into my career at that point. And I'm selected, you know, as an all-star reserve. And I remember uh, getting to Seattle. And fortunately, you know, I knew one person, Kurt Schilling, who was in the organization when I got drafted. And he had a rehab assignment and I got to face him. And I don't know how we bonded over that, but we just did. He was just like, you know, the way you conducted yourself, you know, um, during the – I forgot what they call the simulated games, you know, where he's doing his pitches. He just liked the way I went up there, had professional, professional at bats, didn't seem intimidated. So I walk in the clubhouse and in Seattle, my eyes must be the size of two softballs. And he just comes over and grabs me. He's like, you okay? I was like, yeah, man. I was like, I just don't want to, you know, bother anyone. I'm just, I'm trying to look for my locker, but I'm not trying to walk in like I own a place. Cause I do not. You have Sammy, Barry, Kurt, Tony Gwynn as an honorary, I believe that year, um, Randy Johnson. And I'm just like, why am I even here? You know, I, I really want to be just small, like the size of an ant, where I could sneak around, put my uniform on, and get out the locker room as fast as possible. But I want to sit around and hear the conversations also, like what's going on. Vladimir Guerrero was there also. Um you know, just, just what's happened. I want to be a part of it, but I wasn't a part of it. I didn't feel like I was a part of that fraternity. I'm 70 something games into my career. And some of these guys are six, seven years deep. And this is their first all-star, all-star game. So he said, Hey, look, you're here. You're one of us. He walked me over to my locker. It's like, there's a room over there. They have a whole bunch of stuff for you to sign. Go ahead and sign it. Um, you know, you don't have to be shy. Just, you know, just, just go about your business as you normally would. And, you know, I remember listening to Chipper Jones talk about hitting and I'm just, I'm just trying to soak it all in. And then, you know, we, it's, it's time to play the game. And I didn't think I was going to play. I'm, I'm really just really here for the event. Then they honor, uh, you know, Cal and Tony. Um, I think in like the seventh inning, you know, Cal at the first in the home run, I'm sitting there like, I've seen this dude my whole career. And there's no this, – this he's been writing a, a book his entire career, and then he hits a leadoff home run in his first uh, all-star game. This is just crazy. And, but I'm here, so it was surreal. And so when they're honoring um, Cal, the Tony's there as part of the celebration, I stay in a dugout. You know, I'm like, I'm not going out there. There's no way in the world I'm putting – you know, I'm stepping foot on that field. This is for, you know, the guys that have actually earned it, that have been here and, and, and went through the grind. And Kurt looked at me. It's like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm good. And once again, Kurt Schilling came and grabbed me. He's like, man, if you don't get out here, do you know this is a part of history and you want to be a part of this? Which he was absolutely correct. But in my mind, I'm like, I don't even deserve, I don't even know why I'm here. You know, Bobby Valentine, who saw me uh, come up, had some hits against him, I played well against his team, and I was having a solid rookie year. He decided that, 
He wanted me on the team as a reserve, but I don't really feel like I deserve it. And none of that mattered. Kurt made sure I was, uh, you know, a part of that whole celebration. And, um, and, and, and I thank him for that to this day. And then I went on and finished out that rookie year. And we had a couple other good rookies in the NL, one by the name of Albert Pujols and another by the name of Roy Oswalt. And I think I finished third in um, rookie of the year voting. And uh, I just hung around and kept doing the thing for another 15 years after that. I'll tell you, that's a tough draw winning rookie of the year, Albert's rookie year. <laughs> that might yeah. be the great, that might be the greatest rookie year of all time. Yes, but uh, yeah, it, and it's cool to hear you talk about it because I, man, I remember my first All-Star game in 1998 and it was in Colorado and I was just, just like you explain it. I was there. I, I didn't care if I played. I just wanted to get there. I was just, because Barry was on my team, Bonds, because I, I was a red at the time. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in my locker, Barry was a couple down from me. And I remember like, Barry Bonds, I- I'm with Barry Bonds. I got voted on the same team he did. You know, I'm saying this to myself inside, but I was just like you explained it. I was a little kid in a candy shop. You know, we have dreams as kids is I, I-, I want to be a big leaguer. I want to be a big leaguer. You make it to the big leagues and then all of a sudden you make an all-star team. That's the next level. But I was like you. It's like, I don't care. I didn't say much. I just listened to to Barry Bonds talk about hitting, catching the ball with a with a net. He said, you know, and I've heard him talk about it before. I, I didn't understand anything he was saying, but he said, mm-hmm. you know, I just pretend like I have a glove on my hand, and that's how I catch the ball with my bat. And I'm going, yeah, whatever, Barry, but I'm on your <laughs> team. And, and I got voted on the same team as you, so I don't care about that. But it's right. cool to he- hear that because uh, – that's what it is. All, when you get, that's an honor when you when you get voted to an All Star game, especially your first one. It's pretty cool. Oh uh, two, you make the All Star team again. Uh, you steal thirty one bags that year, and now we get to oh three. And uh, a couple couple things about oh three. I want to talk to you a little bit about Tony Gwynn and and the influence he had on you. Uh, that's another time when you're when you're double play partner shows up chase utley where where i'm kind of jealous because you guys got to 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 be a combination for a lot of years a lot of us don't get that you know i've i had barry larkin for five years and that was wonderful but that was it and then i was always mixing and matching with partners uh, i was kind of envious of you guys being able to play together that long um but oh three uh you talk, you talk about – I'll tell you the Boa story real quick, then I'm going to let you expand on those other yeah. topics. Larry – you know, like I said, I grew up with Larry in the clubhouse, and, and I remember we were rolling uh, that team, that Mariner team at that time, and, and we had just left Minnesota, and we were on an 11-day road trip. And I could just feel that team uh, – that, that, you, know, you know, when you're just in that zone, and I just knew – we. Beat the beat the heck out of the twins. Came to you. We we beat you up pretty good the first night. I remember Larry sitting in the dugout during batting practice early. He came out. I kind of waved him out. I said, "Larry, come on! I haven't seen you in years." He comes out. Hey, Booney, how's it going? I said, "It's pretty good." And and I remember coming around the cage, put my arm around Larry. I go, "Larry, here's what's going to happen." I said, "We're going to kick the crap out of you for four games, and then we're going to move on, and then I'm going to cheer for you from afar." 
And I remember I was, you know, you know me, Jimmy, I was completely kidding. It just, but Larry didn't want to hear it at the time. And he's like, Booney, da, 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 da. he ends up, he ends up saying something not very nice. Walking, yeah, walked off, wouldn't talk to me for the rest of the series. And uh, we beat you up pretty good. I, I remember that trip because then we went to New York. We played the Mets next and we swept them. And we were just yeah. on one of those ridiculous streaks. But uh and unfortunately, to- we, have, we have to hear all about it. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about uh, Tony Gwynn. I think he, he had a, a place in your life uh, from a hitting standpoint. And talk about uh, Chase Utley, who's going to be your partner uh, starting in 03 for a lot of years. Uh, definitely. Um, you know, Tony Gwynn um, came recommended uh, via Larry Boa. You know, I. You know, my first rookie year making an all-star team, my second year making an all-star team. And, you, you know, it's, it's usually, you know, you, you make an adjustment, your second year in the league starts to know who you are. So for, so basically for a whole year, my second year, I was able to stave that off. I was able to make the adjustments and, you know, I was able to catch up whenever I fell behind. But here we are in 03, and I just wasn't able to make the adjustment as fast as I had shown in, in the previous years. So we get to San Diego. Um, Larry gives me an off, an, an off day, and I come into his office. You know, he just wanted to talk. It was like, "Hey, you ever um, you ever uh, work with Tony Gwynn?" I'm like, "No." Never even crossed my mind. Like, how in the heck? First of all, would I even get to Tony Gwynn? Second, why would I ask Tony Gwynn? Like, he's the greatest hitter that I've ever seen hit. Like I have zero in common with that guy. Like whatever he does, I can only dream I can do. He's like, ah, he's a, he's a buddy of mine. I'll make a phone call. I'll, uh, I'll make sure you work with him this off season. And I think I'm thinking he's joking. Like, yeah, okay, whatever. I'm going to work with Tony Gwynn. Sure. Lo and behold, I didn't know Tony was coaching down the street. Uh, or I don't know if it's coaching and head coach, um, at San Diego state. um, and I was like, okay, cool. Um, all right, that'll work. I get a phone call. And, and Jock Jones, who was, who was a buddy of mine at the time also, um, I, I reached out to Jock. was like, hey, man, I heard you uh, you know, work out with Tony. He was like, yeah. Um, I heard that you wanted to come down and work out with us. Um, Tony said, uh, your manager, or Larry Bo at the time, you know, called over said you want to work out with him. Now, at that point, I was like, oh, shoot. I guess it's official. I have to go down and work out with Tony because he's really expecting me. And Larry really made this phone call. I thought it was all, you know, just talk. If you know Larry, he's going to talk the talk. But no, he cared enough to actually make the connection with Tony Gwynn. I went down and uh, stayed with Jock at his place. And I just sat there and asked him the first night, you know, I'm nervous. Like, man, I'm about to go work with Tony Gwynn. I'm going to look like an absolute idiot on this T or whatever he's doing, whatever he's going to tell me to do, I'm already know I'm going to fail. And, you know, we'd work and he set the T up and we do things and I get frustrated. And it was one thing he asked me that I use the rest of my career. And I would say from about Oh five through 11, it was when I, you know, I, I really grasped the concept. I would, you know, he had me, he had me attempt to do something, you know, I do it, well, once or twice, and then that'd be it. You know, I'd have next 10 swings, and I get frustrated. And he asked me, you know, what do you get mad? What do you get upset for? I'm like, because Tony, like, I was able to do it, 
And then all of a sudden it was like my body just forgets, like it just has a mental block. And he's like, did it help you get any better? And I was like, no. He's like, so the matter you got, the results followed that. They kept getting worse. And I was like, yeah, but he's like, well, what are you getting upset for? And I just looked at him. I was like, I don't know. It was like, if upset helped players become better players, the field would be full of Hall of Famers. And I was just like, wow. All I knew was whenever you don't succeed in something, the right emotion to show is anger or frustration or getting upset. And what he taught me was to use your mind. If it doesn't work, if you can't figure it out, think about it, contemplate what isn't working, where the adjustment needs to be made and make the adjustment. So now my focus was always on searching. And if you knew Tony, he never stopped searching on how to become a better hitter, how to try to hit 400. His goal was to hit 400. So he was always searching. It was never frustration. It was searching, making that adjustment, which it didn't seem like he had to make adjustments. He got a hit. seemed like every time he got up. But for me, it became about that. And in 07, which was the year I won MVP, and, you know, years leading up to that, I would ask, you know, my teammates, like, what are you getting upset for? And they would, same thing. They look at me like, what are you talking about? And the same thing. Did you throw your helmet, you slamming your bat, did that make you a better hitter? Did that solve your problem? And it was kind of like the same light bulb went off in their heads. And, or at least I like to think that, but you see frustration becoming less and less. And now it was a search now you're searching for what needs to be done, what adjustment that um, needs to be made. And the focus became on that. And as long as the focus became on that, you were going to strive to be a, a better player. So um, that was, you know, I couldn't hit like Tony, but that was one thing I definitely took away was to work and think my way to keep um, progressing um, without anger, without judgment, but just the, the relentless search on becoming a better player. Yeah, I got to play with Tony one year uh, in 2000. Amazing. And, you know, other than, and I say it all the time, uh, other than Barry Bonds, who who for a period of time I've never seen a player in a batter's box dominate the way he did. But I, I got to play with some, you know, I was lucky enough and fortunate enough to, to play with some pretty darn good players through my career. And uh, Tony's the best pure hitter I've ever seen. And, and I remember playing defense and, and you probably had experience playing defense against him. It seemed like where you'd, where you'd play him. It's like he was the only hitter I knew that was aiming the ball. I'd play him in the hole and that sucker would hit it up the middle. I'd play him up the middle. He'd hook it in the hole. And, and, and when I got a chance to finally play with Tony in 2000, I only got to play with him for a year. I said, T, tell me this. And, and don't lie to me. I know you're good. I said, do you really look to see where I'm playing you? And he, he gave me that, that grin that he's, only <laughs> yeah. he can do. And he goes, Booney, of course I did. I said, how come the rest of us can't do it? I'm just looking. If I get a good pitch to hit, I'm just trying to knock the crap out of it somewhere. Last thing I'm thinking is about a hole I'm hitting. He goes, no, without a doubt. He said, I, I'll take a look up. I have, a, I have an idea where you're, where you're shading me. And he said, I couldn't do it every time. He goes, but I definitely had an idea. If I got mm -hmm. the right pitch, I was going to hit it in the hole or hit it up the middle. Only guy I know that can, can say that, and I actually believed him. Because he had, beat, he had beat me so many times defensively. And I'm going, how does, how does he keep hitting it? You know, I, I didn't know what to do. 
So I just ended up, you know, later the last few years I played, I just played them straight up. Straight up. Yeah, and exactly. I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know what else to do with them, but uh, pretty cool. Oh, five, you're an all-star again. Uh, and this gets pretty interesting. 36 game hitting streak. Um, a lot of us, you know, I don't know if I ever got to 20 games, but I knew if, if you get up into the high teens, it seems like you, you, you haven't, not, <laughs> you haven't not, I couldn't imagine getting to 36 games and then you got to sit on it for the off season and come back the next year. Uh, what was that like for you once you I, I would assume you know I know how the press gets you get around 20 games they want to start talking about it a little bit I never got to 30 so I don't know what that's like but I would assume after 30 it starts to people start looking at you different you know like hey uh, you know they, <laughs> a lot of some, questions. some of your teammates don't want to mess with you they want to leave you alone they don't know what to do you know how we get quirky as, as players with all the with all the uh you know the weird superstitions. Yeah, yeah, yeah we don't we don't want to mess it up. Those. But you get around thirty games. Uh, just take me through that, and and then what it's like to sit on it for. Did you think about it that off season? Uh, of course. I mean, I, who doesn't have grand ideas? Like, man, okay, I'm looking at who we're playing. I'm like, I have success against these guys, these guys, these guys, and I'm excited. And the funny thing about the streak was, oh five, we were you know coming down a stretch. Um, fighting for a wild card spot. And I think I get up to 20 games and Marcus Hayes comes in. He's a beat writer at the time. It was like, Hey, you know, you have a 20 game hitting streak. I had no clue. Only thing I was looking was at what was at the standings. Did we, did we, are we a half game back, half game up, one game back, one game up. That's all that really mattered. My job was to go out there, get on base, steal bases, score runs, make defensive plays, and whatever it takes to win. And he said it, and I'm just like, oh, man, that's pretty cool. You know, and, and, and it was really nothing more to it than that at 20 and 25. And now now I'm aware. It's like, oh, wow, that's, that's 25 now. You know, and it's cool. Then it's 30. And now I'm looking at, you know, the standings, but also understanding no matter what happens, if I head out the rest of the season – I can't break the record. So there's no pressure. You know, it'd be cool to keep it going, but I can't break the record this year. So there's no pressure in trying to compete with that. And then the offseason comes along and then the debate happens. You know, if he does it, does it count? It's not a single season record. And I'm just enjoying it. I'm like, wow, I didn't, I mean, not that I didn't know it was such a big deal, but I didn't think it was a big deal going into the offseason. And here I am, you know, still. 20-something games shy. That is a long shot. Uh, the season comes, you know, as the season starts coming around and spring training is happening, of course, the buzz picks up again. And it just felt good just to, you know, be the topic of conversation. Like, wow, this is this is pretty cool. What if I do get it? You know, what is that going to be like? I don't care if it's done in two seasons. I, they could put an asterisk by it. I really wouldn't care if I get it. That means it's mine. And you can, you know, style it, label it any way you want. And so the season comes around. This is something a lot of people didn't know. The night before opening day, I used to always, you know, Dusty's my guy. Dusty used to have toothpicks in his mouth. And I used to two toothpicks, the mint ones. And I must have dropped a toothpick into a, a carpet that I had at the time. It was a flaccata carpet, you know, two inch long, basically fur hanging out everywhere. 
that as I'm getting ready to go to bed that night before opening day, I step on a toothpick that was broken and it is lodged in my right foot, right under my big toe. And I'm just and I, and I don't see it like it just literally disappears all the way into my skin. And I'm limping around. I'm like, oh, that really hurts. But maybe it'll be, you know, be, you know, uh, better by tomorrow. I just thought I just poked, stepped on something hard, thought nothing of it, found a toothpick, got rid of it. But it was broken, not realizing that it broke off in my foot. So opening day comes around, I wake up and I take a step and a shooting pain goes right up through my foot. I'm just like, you got to be kidding me. There's no way in the world I can miss a game with the hitting streak on the line and tell them, you know, I stepped on a toothpick and that's why I'm not playing today. That sounds like I'm afraid. And, you know, you know us, um, you know, we can't be labeled as soft or a guy who, you know, gets a little boo boo and decides he doesn't want to play. So I get to the field. I'm just like, I have no idea what's going on. I go to the trainer at the time, Jeff Cooper. I'm like, look, I stepped on a toothpick. It just hurts. And he's looking at it. He's like, oh, I can see it right there. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, no, it's in your foot. What do you mean it's in my foot? And we're facing, I forgot who we're facing, but it's a left-handed pitcher that day. So now that's my backside. I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. And he was like, we can try to get it out. I'm like, nah, I'll just leave it in. And I've, I've made it this far. We taped it up, wrapped it up, put my cleat on, left it on all day. Fortunately, I believe my first at bat, I got a hit. I'm like, I don't care what happens the rest of the time I got the hit. I'll deal with it. Next day come around, I think in my first or second bat, I got a hit. That puts me at 36. I'm like, perfect. Just leave it there. Maybe it's a good luck charm. And then I face this guy, this kid, or we're, we're both kids, named Jason Marquis. And we face each other a number of times in the minor leagues. And I looked at that the next day. And, you know, you, you never – want to think negatively, but you have to be real with yourself. And I'm like, if I get past him, I have a legitimate chance. But I know since the minor leagues and in the big leagues, in 50 at bats, I might have three hits, maybe four. I'm like, I just, I mean, should I bunt? I'm like, I don't want to disrespect the streak that way by getting a bunt base hit. No, you you know what? You have to fight this one out. Anyhow, end up going like 0 for 3, 0 for 4. I may have been walking there and I'm like, damn it. I knew it. And my dad calls me like Jim Bob, that marquee. He's been breaking your back since you was a kid. We just started <laughs> laughing about it. You know, that's my dad. Just we were yeah. kids. And then um, I go into the training room after I you know, speak with my dad. Cooper, uh, Jeff Cooper looked at me. He's like, what do you think now? I was like, shoot. I mean, it's over with now. So might as well. Sure enough, we popped the toothpick out of my foot. The next day it feels better, and I hit for 11 straight games after that. I was like, "You, that's that's just how it works. I, I miss one game, and then I go 11, 11 straight games after that with the hit. Mm. Uh, that is remarkable. Uh, uh, you get to 07, that's the big year. And, and the, the funny thing is, is you weren't an all-star this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, 07 starts a gold glove run for you. You end up winning four. Um you want a silver slugger, and you end up winning the MVP. You lead the league in in games played. Shocker! You led the league at bats only with <laughs> only seven sixteen. You two ninety six thirty ninety four ninety four for a leadoff man. One hundred and thirty nine runs you scored, and you stole forty one. Uh, it's kind of like a dream year. I mean, pretty awesome. 
just give me a snapshot of it. You know that um that was an, that was that was an inspired year. Um, we had a um, you know we do your interviews in off season. We have the parade, not parade, but the caravan, and you have to do your media. And the Braves had just lost their hold on the division. The Mets had won in 06, and we remember the uh, playoff series in 06 between the Mets and the Cardinals. Well, that was a great uh, LCS. And, you know, the Mets are primed with, with all their talent and the veterans that they uh, picked up that year you know, to, to take over the division. And f- the way I viewed it was somebody finally beat the Braves. So now the Braves must speak whatever magic they had on a division, it's gone. So it's up for grabs. Somebody had to do it, and it was like, congrats to the Mets. You guys were the one. That didn't matter to me. I'm like, we played the Braves well, head up. We played you guys well, head up. They just did it better against everybody everybody else than we did. So when people asked, you know, the Braves were getting older. Uh, the Mets, I felt, you know, that, that they had a young court um, as we did, but their staff was older. And they asked – uh, you know, about the division. I was like, yeah, you know, we're the team to beat now. We were making some moves. We were prime. We almost made it to the playoffs in 06. We were on the doorsteps. I mean, in 05, we were on the doorsteps in 06. And I'm like, we are prime. Like, we have gotten a taste of what it's like to be close and then just get punched in the mouth and sent home. So it's our time. Obviously, being on the East Coast and that close to New York and a team that you know, hadn't really done anything since the 1993 season, it made headlines. You know, how can you say this? The Mets, you know, beat the Braves. You guys can't beat the Mets or the Braves, and you were rash enough to say that. But I'm looking at the squad we have, which ended up, you know, being one hell of a squad. Chase Utley, Ryan Howard, uh, Shane Victorino, Jason Wirth, Pat Burrow, Chooch, and we got John Lieber, um, Freddie Garcia, who came from the 05 uh, Sox, Cole Hamels, uh, developing to one heck of a pitcher. I'm like, we have everything that they have, period. And we're not afraid of them. So we talk about winning. And, you know, we're in a clubhouse. You talk about winning amongst each other, but no one ever says it publicly. It's like a no-no or it's a secret that we want to win. Why keep that a secret? I'm letting everybody know, and it was really for my teammates, that, yes, it's our turn. We talk about it enough. We talk about it in private enough. I don't want to keep it a secret anymore. We're the team to beat. We felt that way. We've come up, we've come up short. Why not? Um, you ask me a question, I'm going to give you an honest answer. So when I say it was inspired, there was a lot of pressure put on me, you know, internally and externally that, you know, I, I just had to stay strong. And there were times, don't get me wrong, where you're looking in the mirror and it's just like, man, maybe maybe that wasn't the right thing to say. Although it was the truth and I felt it in my heart, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe we weren't ready for that. And those were the days I would look out and we'd be playing and my teammates is almost like they could sense it. And they would literally lift me up on their shoulders like, just keep like, we got you. We're not going to let you fail. And man, I'm, I'm, and I don't know if you've ever had that feeling where like your team literally just wills you to be at your best. And that is what happened that year. And, you know, the day we won that division, it was like it, it literally felt like the world on your shoulders being lifted off. I can't explain that feeling. You just have to feel it. It was a it was a thousand pound gorilla just lifted off of my back and I was able to celebrate. It only lasted, you know, four more days because we got eliminated fast. But 
in that moment, it was like it happened. Like I proclaimed it for us. You guys, the times that I was down, you know, just picked me up and you wouldn't let me quit. You wouldn't let me give up. And because of that, I was able to win the MVP alongside. Let's the disclaimer. Chase Utley did get hurt. And if you look at the season he had, if he had enough games, he would have won MVP. But he didn't. But he didn't. <laughs> and, you, and you got, you, you got but, the but trophy. Like, I remind him I, I, every time I see him play golf, I'm like, Chase, thank you for getting hurt in 07. He just laughs. <laughs> see, I have the opposite. I tell Ichiro, you're welcome for, for taking the MVP in 01. You know that's really mine. <laughs> hey, it's, 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 it's hard hitting in front of you. <laughs> well, that's a you know oh seven. It's 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 also the kind of a, a new generation for that Philly team. You know, we had Charlie Emanuel on, and and he came over in oh five, and and he talked about you guys and how you matured as a team and that run you went on. You went to the playoffs five years in a row, went to two World Series, won a World Series. Oh um, eight, you win the World Series, beat Tampa Bay. We talked about your first All-Star game. How about that first World Series? Did it live up to everything you dreamed of? Beyond. Beyond. You know, the, the, the games themselves, and, and it's funny, you know, when you're watching it and you're not in the World Series, you know, you, you, you understand the lights, you understand the stage, you understand the importance because everything's on the line. So as someone in attendance, whether – at the stadium or, or viewing from home, you want to see what the person in that position of trying to win a championship, trying to attain a trophy for their, for their organization and for their city, what they're made of. And, you know, you have all these ideas and thoughts of what it's like. And when you're there, it's all of that. But yet and still, at the end of the day, you're just playing baseball. It's not like they can invent a new pitch there are new rules you have to play by. Um, these are guys that you've never seen and you don't have a book on them. No, it is baseball. So once you get your head wrapped around that, you know, usually by about game two, midway through game two, it's like, this is just baseball. Just go out there and win. The first one to win four games is a champ, and that's it, period. And you're going to be on one side or the other. So give it your all. And then, you know, we – Split in Tampa Bay. We win the first. They win the second. Uh, we come home, uh, end up winning all three. But in typical Philly fashion, uh, fashion, there's a delay. The city south of New York, north of D.C. and stuck in between, has to wait a few more days to see if they can end this drought of 1980 poison that trophy up and it was awesome because it hadn't happened before it was awesome because it got the tests us mentally how do we stay focused and for tampa bay i'm sure it sucked you check out the hotel and you have to you know find somewhere to accommodate family and friends and although we technically did not have home field advantage that year, that moment gave us home field advantage. And then if you grew up playing Nintendo or, or PlayStation or Sega at the time, it was almost like somebody pressed pause on the game. You go eat dinner, 
Um, you go see your friends, you do your homework, and you come back, and they press play with the pitch as a, when we start off on offense. But as a hitter, the pitch is already halfway there. So if you're not mentally ready in that moment, if you're thinking the game is starting over, you're already lost. You've already lost. And I remember Jeff Jenkins, me being a leadoff hitter and him being a you know third-hole hitter his, his entire life, it's different. He comes up, we're starting a fresh end, and he's just and he has ideas of what he wants to do. And he's like, man, I'm not, I'm not certain. I'm I'm not quite sure. Do I take a pitch? You know, what do I do? You know, just being a leadoff hitter, that's just not his thing. He's used to either guys are on base or um, him hitting with two outs, or if he's leading off the end, it doesn't matter because he's just leading off the end and as a 3-0 hitter. But now it feels like it's a brand new game, and I have to remind them they may feel like it's a brand new game. But it's a one-one ball game in the fifth or in the top of the sixth inning, bottom of the fifth, whichever it was, and we just press pause. So that pitcher, he might look at this as this is a new game. When you're when you're looking up, when you're looking at this, like no, I just press pause. And when you step in that box, you're ready to hit. Why give him a strike? He's trying to get in the rhythm. The advantage is ours. We've been in a cage. You've been hitting up until this point, staying loose. He had to go into the dugout, cool off, find his, you know, get his bearings on a, on the mound, and then try to throw strike one. And he just kind of looked at me, and it was like, yeah, that's what that that's being a leadoff hitter. It isn't giving anything. It's I'm ready from the time I step in the box. Jenkins came up, slapped the double off the wall. Something I don't do very good or often. I got a sack bunt down, and Pedro Feliz got a base knock up the middle. Boom, and we win the World Series just like that. Yeah, it had to be awesome. And then you get that Philly parade. Uh, there's there's a lot of great ball, baseball towns out there, That especially that East Coast, you know, New York and Boston. But, man, Philly, just yeah. – and maybe because maybe I was a little kid, you know, growing up there. So it was bigger than it really is. But, you know, they, they can be tough on you when you're not winning. But when you win, I've never got, I've seen a city go – go crazier than they do. So that must've been unbelievable. And, and you follow that up with in uh, 2009, you go back to the world series, you end up losing to the Yankees, but, but a uh, pretty darn good run. And in, in 2010, 11 and 12, you go back to the postseason. And uh, at this point in your career, you've, you've been a Philly since you've been a baby, you know, you yeah. came, you came out of the draft uh, and you'd been there close to what 17 years you know yeah. you get uh jerry jerry or i'm sorry jerry charlie gets gets let go in 2013 they make a change they go to sandberg your last year in philly's 2014 right. uh you end up going to the dodgers but for a guy like you that that 18 years old now all of a sudden you knew nothing else you know you probably you probably had you know, during your career, you thought, well, I'm probably going to be a Philly for from start to finish. And all of a sudden you're going to the Dodgers. Surreal moment for you? Uh, yes. And the fact that I knew that was the organization, uh, although they were in Brooklyn, still the uh, Dodger organization, that gave Jackie Robinson a chance. And, you know, when you get so much time in, you become a 10-5, you can really dictate where you want to go. And after the 14th season, Ruben called me to his office it was like, hey, you know, we, we're considering rebuilding. So if there's any time you don't want to be a part of it, you deserve, you know, a chance to go somewhere that has a chance to win. And I told him, I was like, hey, you know, I, I signed the contract. I have one year left and I plan on um, 
you know, send it through. I'm not going to just jump off the ship because things aren't going well. Um, a short while later, um, we had another conversation. He said the same thing, you know, and I was like, you know what, Ruben, if you get me to L.A., I'll let you trade me there. And it seemed like as soon as L.A. came out of my mouth, the trade was made. And I was like, that was the only place I was really willing to go. And for those reasons, I always envied the guys wearing Dodger uniforms on Jackie Robinson Day and just imagining what it feels like to actually have on a Jackie Robinson Dodger uniform on Jackie Robinson Day. So I got to live that. And it was it was an awesome feeling just like representing, you know, he broke that barrier that made it able for not just, you know, people of color, but anyone other than other than a white athlete, a white baseball player to play in the major leagues and made it acceptable the way he did it. So to be able to wear that uniform that day uh, meant the whole lot. And like I said, that was the only place I wanted to go. And it was really just for that one reason. I had already won. We had already won a championship. I was blessed to be an MVP. I was blessed to be an all-star. But I had never worn a Dodger uniform, the same uniform that Jackie Robinson got to wear. And I was able to do that. And for that, I'm thankful that I was uh, traded to the Dodgers. And I'm thankful that I got to play in that organization for a year and I had a blast. Very cool. You end up 2016 going with the White Sox. Uh, you call it a career after that year. P- pretty awesome career. You know, 1,400 runs, two, 2455 uh, hits you collected, 230 jacks, and, and 470 stolen bases. Great career, Jimmy. Thank you. And, you know, I, I want to get your take on this because, I, as you know, I wasn't a stolen base guy. I think my high, I, I think I stole 16 or 17. One. I was that guy that when, when you were on second base and I was on first, I'd be like, hey, steal third so I, <laughs> so I can get a bag here. You know, my guy was uh, Mike Cameron when I was in Seattle. Right. And I, I had him and, him and Macklemore, you know, were the base stealers. And, uh, and I, whenever they get ahead of me on a base, I'd be like, listen, you got to get me a bag tonight. I can just sneak this, the sneak this back door in. But kid, all, all kidding aside, I, I really love that game. I mean, you, you were, you were that guy stealing base. That was a big part of your game. What made you, you, and we're, I, I think we're missing that a little bit right now. I don't see the guys, you know, the, the, the stolen base has, has, not that I don't want to use the word cheapened, but it's not looked to like it, like it used to be. Uh, I don't see the game, and not everybody, but but statistically, I don't see people running the bases, going first to third, putting putting uh, pressure on that defense constantly, which I think really makes a team. It, it makes them a leg up. I remember in two thousand two. I was in that American League West, and we were kind of the class of baseball with, with the Angels and the A's and the Mariners of that time. And I remember the, the Angels won the World Series in 2002, and it was because of how they ran the bases. And I thought that's what separates them from everybody else. Uh, being a base-stealing guy uh, that, that relied on that for a big part of your game, do you miss seeing that, the emphasis put on that? Do you think it's going to come back? Um, I'll answer the uh, second part. No, I don't think it's going to come back. I would love for it to come back. I mean, I would absolutely love for it to come back. It is an art 
And, you know, like, as you said, it goes beyond stealing bases, just knowing how to run the bases aggressively, knowing how to understand the ball will stop you. And if the ball isn't stop, stopping me, I'm going to continue to go forward. You know, John Vukovic was, he was very big on that. And he, every spring training, he talked about first and third and how it mattered and how it kept the hole open for a left-handed power hitter. Um, it's frustrating to see that when you go to big league ballparks, guys get in the cage, they take their swings, and then they turn around and hang out at the cage. They don't go – even if you just go to second and third base, you could go go past first base. Just run run to first base like you hit the single, go straight to second base. Get some reads. Know what you know a soft line drive looks like coming off the bat and imagining what you do. Know, know what a ball in a gap that is a 50-50 ball. Um, you know, is it one that I hang out halfway or do I go back and tag? How many outs are there? Run yourself through those situations. No one does it. No one teaches it. All they teach is, I can't say all, let's, let's be fair. Their main school of thought is launch angle and on-base percentage. Which is great. If you're going to teach on-base percentage, you have to teach the guys how to run the bases. If you're saying to take pitches to try to get walks, that's great. You're getting them on. Now teach them what to do when they're on, that that on-base percentage turns into a run most of the time. As often as possible, that, that player is going to put himself in position to be driven in by not necessarily a single he can get the third on the first and third. Now a ground ball to the shortstop or, or a chopper over the middle, he can score. A sacrifice fly, he can score. That guy that has speed, that is hitting in front of that power hitter, that's hitting in front of that you know three four hitter, and you know, it's nice to go up there and be like all I have to do is poke a ball and you know and, and this gap there give me and that's an RBI. I could get my I could get my bop later. Now if they slip, you're still going to get your bop. But look, you're on first base. I'm going to hit a double. They're playing no doubles anyway. If you're already on second because you stole second, well, that's an RBI single. Well, they can't hang pitches if you're if you're still in still in third now. That slider that used to used to throw in the dirt, it bags up a little bit. And the guy like you, you hit in the third deck. All those things that I don't think they consider that how putting pressure on a pitcher, advancing bases, um, changes, you know, the way a pitcher throws his pitches because they just worried about as far as offensively hitting the ball in the air and trying to get on base, they don't they don't put the value in the things that, as they say, are little. It's not little to advance the second base on the ball in the gap because a guy can't throw and you know that. Or there's a slight bobble when you came out the box uh, busting it and you take advantage of that. That's, that's just knowing when the ball is off the bat, I can press it here. Then you hit that corner and you see he cut the ball off. Er, you know, I'm going to turn around and go back to first. Knowing all those things. I'm on second base, you know, a a one hopper to the right fielder with a great arm. I'm not scoring. But if it's a flare and I get a good jump, I don't need the third base coach. I'm doing my reads. But all that starts in practice and also being taught how to run bases. But they don't do that anymore. The emphasis just isn't there. And it's actually pretty sad. Yeah, I mean, it it is so important. And and 
you mentioned it's not a it's not a little thing. It's not little ball. Running the bases is huge, and and it's it, it doesn't stop there either. It stops at putting pressure on the defense. You know, you got these outfielders with these great cannon of arms, and nobody's used to. They're not used to anybody running on them. All of a sudden, when a team comes to town that really does run the bases, and they know, wow, they're going to run in my face. Every time I, you know, I remember Ichiro being in right field. Not too many people ran on Ichiro, mm-hmm. but when the when the Angels came to town, they would run on him, and he knew they were going to run on him. I remember Sean Figgins was a terror on the bases, <laughs> and for us being middle infielders, you know how we we we, we keep we try to keep you you know yeah. close to second base. Yeah. But if you're a real base stealer, you're laughing at at me and you giving it the tap tap by the back. Yeah. You know, you're a real base dealer, like Brett. I'm not watching you. That you could you could stand on the bag, and it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. matter. Doesn't I'm really watching matter. the pitcher, and I got my tells over here. Sean Figgins, he'd get the third, and that whole uh, that whole Angel team, and and the guys with speed, they'd be going on on contact third base. I'd be at the cut. You know, I'm I'm fully infield in, and I know they're running in my face. And, and it put a little pressure on me. Like I'm not used to be. I'm not used to people running on me when it's infield in. But I know he's running, and, and I know he works on this. He's going to get a good jump. And it, it it was amazing how good I wasn't <laughs> when I knew you're going to run right in my face. You know, and I used to tell our team that all the time. I said, "Run in their face. You'll be amazed how good these outfielders' arms really aren't, and how accurate they really aren't when you right. constantly are putting pressure on them." And I mm-hmm. think it's the difference. You know, if you if you put two teams against each other all things being equal and then you add that component of this team's runs the shit out of the bases well i'll tell you who's going to be standing at the end of the year that team that ran the bases and it's we could go on and on about it but it it, i'm with you i'm on the same page as you i I really miss that in the game um 2019 uh, i think you're a special advisor to the phillies are you still doing that i know you've been doing some commentating and i see you on tbs uh how how have you liked that have you liked that uh, this this time in your life? You enjoying it? I, I, I definitely am. I mean, yes, I am uh, still a special advisor, um, which allows me to play a lot of golf at a lot of great golf courses in the Pennsylvania area. So uh, if, if, if you're looking for something to do, come howl at the Phillies and we'll get you out there on a the, on the course with me, play 18 and then go eat some dinner. Um, but also, but also, you know, in all seriousness, it does keep me involved. Um I get to put on a uniform. I get to tell the team, hey, I want to go see the team here, and they'll pay for it. And, you know, stay connected. Remind kids that there's an outside voice that I know what it's like to be in a clubhouse. Uh, I know what it's like to play in this town. And if you have any questions, I'm here. You know, I mean, just neutral. Um, I I don't have an agenda. I'm, I'm just here for you if that's what you need. But you have to be around. They have to see your face in order for them just to even, you know, trust you a little bit because you're not in a foxhole with them. But if you're there and they see you enough and you talk to them and, and, and you're genuine in your approach, you will get little tidbits here and there and you'll be able to tell them something here and there. Whether they use it or not, you can't control that. But you're paying it forward just as someone did to you. Hey, this is what I've learned. Here's a little bit of knowledge. It may or may not work, but. This is what I see, and that's why I'm coming up to you. And, and, and I definitely enjoy that. And then the TBS part, I, I love that. Who doesn't want to talk about playoff baseball? That, that's the best time of the year. People always ask me, do you miss it? It's like, no, I miss nothing about it. 
except playoff baseball. I mean, you know, we talk about the travel. We've traveled our entire lives. Uh, and that's, you know, something separate. But the sport itself, trying to win those 11 games and bring that trophy home, I miss that dearly. I remember when I first got out, I didn't have to wake up. And you know what it's like. You don't have to wake up worrying about, am I making it out today? Who we're facing? Is it hot? Is it cold? Is it rainy? My, my arm hurt. My legs hurt. We just got in at 4 in the morning, and we have a 7 o'clock game. No BP show and go day. I don't have to worry about that anymore. But, man, every time the playoffs come around, you get this little feeling of like, ooh, if I could just somehow find a way to strap it up for this for 11 games, I would do it right now. And I don't think that ever goes away because, you know, it's for everything. It's the meaning of what it means to have the opportunity to be in a playoffs and win a championship. That part, I don't think I'll ever get past or ever get over. Um, that part I will always miss. But uh, playing 162, um, shoot, I went through that grind. and It's for the young kids. I, I tell you that much. That's right. I, I I remember the first thing I used to think about when I when I'd miss the game a little bit. I, I don't miss chasing that slider, blowing away in the dirt. I didn't pick it up out of his hand, and now I'm o two, and it, it seems like I just got to the plate. I don't miss those days. I miss a lot of other things about it, but not those. And and I'm with you on that. I, I did a little bit for the A's in, in fourteen and fifteen. And it was cool. It's cool seeing these young kids develop. And, and I found this, you know, Jimmy Rollins walks into camp with his uni on. You're going to get instant respect from them, you, those young players. Now, to keep that, keep that interest, you got to have something tangible to, to give them. You know, because mm-hmm. that that initial awe, Jimmy Rollins, the MVP in the in the World Series champ, that's going to win. If if you Very can't nice. help, if you can't help them after a while, well, that's great, Jimmy. I got to go to someone that can help me. And I found right. that out really quick. You know, it's, you get that respect because of the grind we've been through and what we've, we've been able to accomplish in our career, but to, but to keep that and to keep that uh, attention from the players, you got to give them something tangible, something that can help them. And I always thought it was cool. Just if, if I felt, you know, and we don't need any of the headlines. I don't need any credit for anything, but if I felt like I helped an A baller just a little bit and a few years later, you see him in the big leagues, that's enough for me, and, and that was a really cool time in my life. I really enjoyed it. Jimmy Rollins, I appreciate you doing this. This was a lot of fun. Uh, I think that the people out there listening to this episode are really going to enjoy it. Uh, what a great career. All all the best to you in the future. we got to hook up. we got to play some golf. Love we'll, to. We'll, we'll get together. But as we do each and every Boone podcast at the end of the show, uh, we kick it back to the voice of the Boone podcast, the one and only Dan Levy. Dan. Guys, Jimmy, how are you? I am fantastic. How are you, brother? Doing good. All right. The question comes from Mark out in the city of Chicago, and he wants to know what was your experience and what were your thoughts on the clubhouse of the White Sox when you came out here in the later part of your career? Um, well, it started off great. Um, I love the city. Obviously, it's very cold. Um, but I was, I was okay with that because I played so many years in Philadelphia and we had a great clubhouse. We had veteran guys. Um, you know, we had a little controversy going on, uh, in spring training, but other than that, you know, we started off great. No one expected that. And the clubhouse was great. Um, then, you know, as the season goes along, the cream rises to the top and we weren't the team. And I was informed that they were going to, uh, bring Tim Anderson up and, he was a, a, a young man that 
admired me as a player. So I spent some time with them in spring training and it was definitely, definitely mutual. And I told him in spring training, actually, Hey, look, I'm here as a placeholder, you know, don't have me waiting too long. And when it's your time, don't feel bad. I've done everything I could do in this game. So no matter how I want to look at it, I have one, maybe two years left. So this is your team. This is your spot. And don't make me wait too long. And he has not disappointed. And as far as this season goes, what do you see happening for the White Sox? Can they win it all? That's, you know, that's, can they? Yes, I, I, I think, you know, any of the better teams can. Uh, they've made some moves, uh, got rid of some guys. But, I mean, anyone that plays for a Tony La Russa team or anyone that's playing against the Tony La Russa team, you know they're going to be well coached. They're going to be well managed. They're going to do things right. You're going to see some innovative stuff. Tony's always, you know, three innings ahead of you um, as a manager. So when you go there and he has weapons, he knows how to use them. He knows how how to get the best from his players. We saw it in Oakland. Uh, We saw it again um, in St. Louis. And now he's back home, you know, with the White Sox. And we saw what they did last year. And they're just looking better and stronger. And if they're healthy this year, uh, you know, everybody's going to have their entries. But if they're healthy... I think they have a legitimate shot. Jimmy Rollins, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, sir. We appreciate it. I appreciate you guys having me. That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast. EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera, digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone Podcast. Neighbors and friends and all those that love sports, make sure you subscribe never miss an episode and while you're at it give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show for all of us here on the moon podcast he is brett boone you can find him on social media at the moon 29 i'm dan levy b-a-s-s on air that is base on air all my social medias thanks for listening we'll do it again soon have a great one